0: Obviously we've been focusing a lot on Bitcoin, but one question uh, remains supreme. Can Bitcoin ever act as a true currency? Is it the future of money? Right now I want to bring in Wolfgang Kester. He is chief Executive officer, chairman and co-founder of Fire Apps which is based in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, Wolfgang, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Fire Apps is known as it. a firm that helps companies understand their foreign exchange, their currency uh, risk. Does your recent focus on Bitcoin indicate that you consider it a currency?
2: No, I don't. I think that uh, while some people may consider it a currency um, to the point that there's some sort of size to it, but reality is that I've been talking to a lot of corporate CEOs and CFOs as well as Treasury departments, and none of them are really with the exception of some maybe marketing gimmicks are really looking at Bitcoin as a currency that they're going to be doing business in and there really are three reasons for that Um, the first one is that the Federal Reserve Bank itself will end up coming out with a digital currency and that's what they're waiting for and other governments will as well secondly is there is a Senate bill 1241 that has been discussed for over two hours on November 28th, so very recently, where they're looking to change the definition of financial institutions, and what that would do if they get what they're looking to get, which is pretty likely, it would actually criminalize Bitcoin um, and would make would make the um, liquidity rather questionable. Wait, wait, how so? Last,
0: oh, Carrie, finish you um, three and then we'll go back. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, no, that's fine. No problem at all. We can talk about taxation here in a little bit, which is the third part that the governments will do to really, uh, to some degree, fight Bitcoin in that sense. But let's go back to two then.
0: Yeah, I want to talk about two just because if you criminalized Bitcoin, that would certainly hamper the meteoric rise uh, that we have seen this year. How would it do that?
2: Well, it would do that by changing the definition of what is a financial institution and what uh, are they allowed to do. So how transparent do they have to be? And quite frankly, the whole thing on Bitcoin, as you all know, is that it is based on a blockchain technology, one of many. uh, Blockchain technologies that actually hides who's doing the transactions. And the United States government, as well as many other governments, saying that's not acceptable.
0: Okay, I want to go back to the first thing that you said, too, because this is fascinating, that the Federal Reserve uh, could come out with its own digital currency as soon as next year. What does that mean? I mean, there is a difference between digital currency, which we all use when we use credit cards or uh, you know Apple Pay or other things that are online transactions. Uh, it's another thing for it to be on blockchain. So what are you talking about specifically with the Fed issuing this digital currency?
2: Yeah so what i i believe has happened over the last 5 to 10 years if you arguably since 2008 is that Um, the the people that started cryptocurrencies um, really looked at there is an inefficiency in the market, and I believe they were right. The inefficiency is twofold. One is it takes two days on average to move from one account to another, and two is it's pretty expensive. So what they try to achieve is a currency that is digital and immediate, as you were saying to some degree, like credit cards are, as well as some that are not as expensive. And so these inefficiencies Need to be embraced by the governments, and they are. Interestingly, here and even uh, Putin came out with that they will uh, issue a crypto ruble in January of next year already. So this is pretty imminent. Is the fact that at the end of the day is that blockchain can actually use quite exactly opposite the way Bitcoin is using it right now. I.e., the reason, one of the two reasons that uh, Putin wants to do this is because he wants to gain better visibility into all transactions related to the ruble, the United States will end up doing the same thing.
0: This is really fascinating. So in other words, it's sort of a blockchain that rather than decentralizing the currency, really centralizes it and gives the government visibility into every transaction. Is that correct?
2: That is correct. That is my belief. And that's what uh, everything is pointing towards. And if you look back at some of the uh, work that's already been done uh, in Washington on this, on dual ledger technology, it absolutely confirms that.
0: So the Treasury Department basically, I'm trying to figure out how this would work. Would they remove all paper currency from circulation or they would just have a subset uh, that would be used for business transactions and start there? How would it work? How would it begin?
2: Yeah, the way I envision it is it's kind of like uh, the euro for when the euro came out. Um, You know, you still had for a while Deutsche Marks and French francs, and then slowly but surely they disappeared. And now you can't, you know, can't use a Deutsche Mark anymore in Germany, but you can use euros. And I anticipate this to be very similar. It's going to take time. It's not going to be immediately digital dollar is here, and therefore paper currencies are gone. But... It is definitely going into that direction. If you think about the way we transact today, you know, I have dollars in my wallet. I hardly ever use them. I certainly use my credit cards or other uh, payment methods, and this is going to be the same thing. It's going to be better, quicker, faster, yet very controlled. And the reason that the United States Fed isn't going to come out with this in January is because they're going to have to build a very secure um, blockchain that everybody trusts that won't be broken into.
0: So FireApp clients include Google, Ericsson, Pepsi, Nike, Accenture and Merck. How do they feel about the introduction of a cryptocurrency and how do they feel about Bitcoin?
2: Well, I think that all of them in general, I certainly have NDAs, so I'm not going to speak to one particular one, but all in general have the belief that digital currency will actually be good for them. I think it will help them transact faster and cheaper. And yet they do realize one of the reasons that we're also talking to them is that that requires more automation on their part. So as digital currencies are coming abroad and all of a sudden they don't have manual processes that allow them to spend two days of settling currencies, it's going to be immediate. And so they're looking at what the company needs to do to be ready for this and how to automate these processes which end up streamlining uh, liquidity, really uh, to that uh, to the point that they will. so it's going to be actually going to be embraced by them and they're and I'm not hearing anything negative about digital yeah. currency. I am hearing that for Bitcoin is just too volatile to get involved in Wolfgang, from a true main mean.
0: Wolfgang Kester, thank you so much for joining us, CEO Chairman and co-founder of FireApps in Phoenix, Arizona. This is Bloomberg. Viagra is going generic. This is a big moment uh, for the millions of people who have been affected by this drug. And here to talk about it is John Totsi. He's a healthcare reporter for Bloomberg News. And he joins us here in our 1130 studios. So your piece was phenomenal. You basically talked to uh, the creators of uh, Viagra and about the creation of it. And before we go into the implications of it going to generic, can you just give us the story behind uh, how they came uh, to develop this drug?
3: Sure. This was uh, a drug that Pfizer was actually investigating for a different purpose back in uh, the late 18, uh, excuse me nineteen eighties and early nineties. They were looking for uh, treatments for hypertension, high blood pressure, and then uh, for uh, chest pain, and uh, the compound that they. Uh, You know, the chemists at Pfizer at a lab in England were developing. It didn't really show a lot of effect in those conditions, but it did have a side effect um, that uh, they decided was worth looking into.
0: So the side effect was that it uh, allowed erections to last longer and come more frequently. And some of the details were hysterical. Uh, One of my uh, favorite from this whole thing is uh, that the study subjects were fitted what was called ridgescan uh, and given the drug and shown blue movies or movies that were soft pornography or hard pornography. At the end of the week, we had to get the drugs back from them, anything that was unused. Some of them would not give the drug back
3: this is actually something we heard from several researchers we talked to that during you know trials all along the the time when Viagra was being developed you know the when you when you test a drug you can only give it for a limited amount a limited period until you know that it's not going to be toxic for when taken for longer um, and the researchers had real trouble getting the drugs back people didn't want to give this up and I think for Pfizer um, you know this was a a condition that didn't really have a pharmaceutical treatment before Viagra, and that was an indication to them of how important it could be to the people who would take it.
0: Well, and John, to that point, uh, Viagra kind of changed the conversation about sex on a pretty massive scale. I mean, in, in one uh, case, there, one of the uh, researchers, one of the developers, was going to go on a major television network, and they said, what are you going to say And he said he was going to use the word erection, and they said, no, you can't do that.
3: Right. I think that was actually uh, not one of the Pfizer researchers, but another doctor. But yeah, I think, you know, it was a period when um, in the culture, uh, Americans were becoming more comfortable kind of talking, frankly, about sexuality, um, you know, in a way that, you know, decades before wasn't really uh, the case
0: so now that uh, the drug is going generic, what are the implications? It's, it will be cheaper. Uh, it will be less of a moneymaker for Pfizer. And will it become more mainstream, or it already has gotten so mainstream that it really can't really have much more?
3: Uh- yeah, I mean, I think it, it's hard to tell. I mean, the price will go down. That happens whenever there's a generic version of uh, the drug. Um you know, I know there's certain in the United Kingdom they're actually applying or in the process of trying to have it sold over the counter. So I think, you know, from the drug manufacturer's uh, point of view, the, the um, you know, the goal is to make it more widely available, um, more easily available. Um, but, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with the generic. It's unclear how much— um, you know, the price is a barrier to people taking Viagra or if everybody who wants it pretty much has it?
0: One one question that I have is from the female side. I mean, it's it's one thing for men to have this, but um, as a lot of comedy shows kind of highlighted, uh, men would come home and be very excited and the women would say, oh my God, no. <laughs> um, so there's a question about, you know, allowing women's libido to match uh, men's on Viagra. Is there any uh, development there with respect to a feminine
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly in the history of Viagra, that was something that um, people were, you know, that was an issue, that women were, were, uh, you know, did not have a drug that worked similarly. Viagra was actually tested in women at one point to see if it would work, and it didn't show much efficacy. Um, There is uh, at least one product on the market intended to um, help uh, improve women's libidos, but uh, I think the— consensus is that, you know, it doesn't have the same um, effect, you know, the same degree of efficacy that Viagra had for men. So, you know, that's an area of uh, research and science that I think is still uh, being investigated.
0: Just real quick, can you give us a sense of how big a business Viagra has been for Pfizer?
3: Uh, well, we look, We looked up the uh, sales over, since it was released in 1998, it's been about $36 billion in sales. Um, that's a big number, but it's by no means Pfizer's biggest drug. Um, so, you know, it's an important product. But, you know, what's interesting, the Pfizer, uh, many Pfizer veterans we talked to said, you know, it wasn't our biggest product, but it's what people knew us, you know, people would find out you worked for Pfizer and then they'd be like, oh, Viagra. Um, Whereas, you know, they didn't have the same effect for for Lipitor, for example.
0: Yeah, people like to talk about sex more than blood pressure, evidently. John Totsi, uh, thank you so much for joining us. He's a healthcare reporter with Bloomberg News.
4: Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time.
0: Many analysts and investors have said that companies will just buy back more of their shares with the money that they receive from the tax cuts. Others are saying not so fast. Companies have already slowed their stock purchases. Here to hash this argument out with us is Tim Grisky, Chief Investment Officer of Solaris Asset Management in New York. Tim, thank you so much for joining us.
5: Good morning, Lisa.
0: Good morning. So let's talk about where we are with respect to stock buybacks because actually S&P 500 companies have announced uh, the intention to purchase $568 billion of their own shares through the first 11 months of 2017, which is a lot, but it's down 10% from a year ago and on pace to be the first decrease since 2008. That is according to data compiled by Biryani uh, uh, Associates. So Do you think that we're in a slowing down phase for the share buybacks? Do you think that they're going to get ramped back up with any tax cut?
5: Well, you know, as you said, we certainly have seen a slowdown in buybacks, but uh, it's not that uh, I don't think you can assume that that's going to be what's going to happen with these uh, tax savings. I We have to differentiate between two things here. One is the repatriation of foreign cash. And the other one is the annual tax savings from the lower tax rate. The repatriation is going to be a one-time benefit to companies. And we think the majority of that is probably going to go to stock buybacks. Unlikely that that will go to dividend increases because it's not going to be repetitive. Some will go certainly to any capital spending projects that companies might have. But if companies have a good growth prospect from reinvesting inside the company, they're already doing it, especially given how low debt is.
0: So in other words, you're saying that to the extent that there is going to be a boost from share buybacks, it'll be a one-time thing largely tied to the cash repatriation. Am I understanding that correctly?
5: Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, you said that better than I did. Well,
0: no, well I mean, how much with, 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 the, with the cash repatriation, one big question that I have is, haven't we already seen that money get repatriated? I mean, you've seen the Apples and the Oracles of the world borrowing billions and billions of dollars through the debt markets to uh, do their capital, uh, re- whatever it is that they are doing. They're uh, giving their money back to their shareholders. Apple has like, I think, a $300 billion uh, capital uh, give back program. I mean, haven't we already seen this? Well, we've seen it from a handful of
5: companies, but there's still a lot of companies out there with foreign cash stranded overseas. Now, a lot of these companies, we think, have found ways of actually using that cash overseas, repatriating part of it uh, through various schemes, uh, and and finding ways of of, uh, of really uh, using that cash in far, on foreign soil to benefit the company. So, We think there will be some repatriation, but companies are going to have to decide if they want to pay that 10 percent tax on repatriating those dollars or leave it where it is if it's actually returning uh, above that 10 percent penalty.
0: So, Tim, do you think that in general, the tax plan, as laid out in the House and Senate, understanding that there will be some changes, do you think that it will stimulate growth materially?
5: You know, we, we just don't see that. We think if there are growth prospects out there, and certainly the economy is growing, it's accelerating growth, um, you know, we, we think that's already being done by companies. Already, companies are already putting their money into growth opportunities that they have. And there's no reason for them not to do that. Uh, they can certainly borrow money very inexpensively now uh, to, um, to stimulate any internal growth. Otherwise, they're going to look to, to uh, gift it to their shareholders, uh, either through stock buybacks or through increasing dividends. And we think the annual tax savings might lead to some nice dividend increases at a number of companies.
0: Is there any company in particular that you're targeting for a dividend increase?
5: Well, I think if you look at some of the old economy companies uh, that don't have other places to put their money, I think increasing dividends in those companies, uh, which will attract a certain type of investor, those dividend income loving investors, we think that's where uh, a lot of dividend increases might occur.
0: Are you uh, changing around your investments at all in response? Not, you
5: know, not really. It's hard to know what co- which company is going to do what. Are they going to increase dividends? Are they going to increase buybacks? Uh, are they going to find some internal growth opportunities? It's hard to know at this point. Uh, but we do know that there are a number of companies out there with high tax rates that are going to be big beneficiaries. And we have made investments uh, in those companies. Can you give us any names? Broadcom, uh, symbol is AVGO, uh, is a high taxpayer, and we think it's going to really benefit from lower tax rates.
0: And real quick, what about bonds? Do you think that they're going to get crushed next year?
5: No, Uh, you know
0: (laughs) (laughs) we're going to see four percent interest rates. The world's going on fire.
5: Investors need bonds. Pension funds need bonds. Uh, Bonds are not going to go away at all. Is Uh it going to be a great place for money? I don't think it's going to be anything special, uh, but there will be a place for bonds and portfolios.
0: Tim Grisky, thank you so much for joining us. Tim Grisky, Chief Investment Officer of Solaris Asset Management in New York. Uh, Definitely intriguing about the old economy companies that will uh, increase their dividends and attract some shareholders and possibly be looked at as even better bond substitutes. Interesting developments. In 2015, there was a lot of focus on the Baltic Dry Index and how low it was. This is an index that measures how much ship owners are making to ship uh, dry bulk, things like iron ore or grains or uh, whatever else uh, is needed in a general economy. This year, however, it has surged to the highest since early 2014 and here to do a victory lap, uh, or perhaps not. He he said it. it is not his style. John Wobensmith, president of Genco Shipping, uh, which is based in New York, shares up almost sixty-two percent so far this year. So, John, uh, how much more do you think that the dry, uh, the Baltic Dry Index has to rise, and what's behind this?
6: Yeah, so I think you, I think you have to take a, a step back to where we were over the last couple of years, where we had too many ships in the market. Um, we've always had a a pretty robust demand situation, but the 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 Ship owners overbuilt. So now we're in a situation where we've ab- absorbed that supply because of increasing demand, but also a lot of scrapping um, or removing ships from the market over the last couple of years. And we're looking forward into 2018, and we're only going to see 1% to 1.5% growth in the number of ships that are delivering versus a growth of 3 to 4% on the demand side driven by iron ore and coal imports primarily.
0: So this is a two-sided equation. In other words, there are fewer ships being built and there is incrementally more demand uh, coming out of different economies. So uh, before we get into your projection of how much more the Baltic Dry Index could rise, I'm curious, which do you think is more important here? I mean, in other words, when people point to this increase and they say, well, this is the leading indicator that shows the global economy is surging, are you saying not so fast this is really kind of a more complicated equation that has uh,
6: several different heads? I think there are two things here. Um one the supply side in dry bulk shipping meaning the number of ships that are on the water on any given day to ship a cargo is probably one of the major factors and does drive the market. Having said that, if you look at what we're seeing on the cargo flow side, we're seeing increased iron ore going into China. We're seeing increased coal going into China, which is all done on the larger ships. But here's the neat thing. It's not just China-centric as we've seen in the last couple of years. We've seen a recovery in the European steel industry. So increased iron ore imports and coking coal going into Europe. We've seen India's steel industry recover, so increased coking coal going into India. We've seen coal imports into Taiwan, the Philippines, um, cement into, into, into Indonesia, in the out, coming out of the U.S. Gulf, on the grain front, soybeans and corn are at all-time highs. So this is much more of a global recovery from what we're seeing for cargo flows.
0: So when was the last time that Genco shipping saw this degree of activity and demand
6: I, I would say you'd have to go back to probably 2014 2013 2014 and it, what what happened in 2013 again we we saw some overbuilding we have now absorbed all of that and as i said before it's because of high scrapping over the last 24 months and just a complete slowdown in the number of ships that are uh that are going on the water, and I'll just go back to it. it just simple number-wise, again, you look at next year and then 2019. The supply side of the equation, meaning the number of ships that are that are going to come to the water, is very predictable. Right, and you know, because if you're going to contract a ship today, that's two years out. So for the next two years, you have a good visibility on the supply side, and we're only going to see, as I said, one and a half percent fleet growth in 2018 and somewhere around one to one and a half in 2019 against a backdrop of three to four percent growth on the demand side. Those are very favorable numbers going into 18 and 19. And that's why I go back to we're see, we're in the beginnings of, of the recovery, and we've started to see it this quarter, fourth well, quarter.
0: And, and I want to pick up on that because we mentioned that Genco is up uh, nearly uh, 62% so far this year, but that follows a, a nearly 51% loss last year and 88 or 89% loss the year before. So there's a question of, you know, were these just these shipping stocks way too beaten up and there was way too much demand uh, and we're seeing a recovery. There's a question of how much we will recover because if you look back at the Baltic Dry Index going back to 2008 and 2007, 2006, it was still a lot higher than where we are today. So do you think that shipmakers will uh, start earning more and more or are we close to the peak here?
6: No. Again, I go back to, I think we're in the first innings innings. of of the game. Um, This is something that we started talking about at the beginning of uh, of 2017, um, that we thought that supply and demand fundamentals would start to come into balance in the fourth quarter. We're now seeing that. And going into next year, again, we see an even rosier picture because the supply side of the equation, the number of ships that are being delivered are going to basically be at all-time lows at 1.5%. So how are you positioning Genco to take advantage of this upside? So a couple things. One, if you look at the, um, the the real growth in commodities, it's going to come on the iron ore front with an increased... Iron ore exports going from Brazil to China. Vale, in particular, is projecting another twenty-five th- to twenty-five to thirty million tons of iron ore that is going to be shipped. And the great thing about Brazil to China, that's a long haul trade route, so it increases ton The great thing demand. for
0: shipping owners. The great,
6: the great thing for <laughs> All shipping right, go owners. go on. No, that, that's exactly right. Um, and what's also driving a lot of this, which I think is important is the environmental side in China. So China is actually encouraging imports of higher-grade iron ore, which can only come from seaborne. It cannot come from domestic suppliers in China. So we're seeing domestic supply shrink in China and more seaborne trade of iron ore take place.
0: I'm curious what you think about the U.S.- tax plan and increasing t- uh, trade tensions between the U.S. and other countries. Is that on your radar at all as possibly
6: hampering trade, or is that just sort of noise for you? I, for dry bulk shipping, it really doesn't come into play. If you think about just the major trade routes, again, it's Brazil to China, Australia to China on the iron ore and coal front. And then you have a strong trade in the minor bulks, whether it be cement or soybeans, corn coming out of the U.S. Gulf. Going into Europe, going into India, going into China. I, I don't you know, I, I don't see any trade issues with that. China has all the incentive in the world to continue growing on the steel production side.
0: Based on what you're seeing from the demand side, what country do you think has a better economy than
6: many give it credit right now? I think the Chinese economy is, is strong. I mean, I, you know, I, I go back over the last six to eight months, and I, and I think that people are finally starting to recognize that iron ore imports are really growing at a significant level. And I think people failed to grasp the environmental um, aspect of China and clamping down on pollution and how that is actually beneficial to dry bulk shipping and the shipping of high quality iron ore.
0: John Woben Smith, thank you so much for joining joining us. He's president of Jenko Shipping, which is based in New York. Very interesting. Thank you. Thank you. Co- Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can
2: subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox.
0: I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
1: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state